A massive number of companies are going through some sort of digital transformation, just about 90% of them according to McKinsey Research, all with varying levels of success. It is show me the money time for digital transformations. To succeed in a digital transformation, it needs to be a CEO agenda item. It needs to mobilize cross-functional teams across the company in a unique way. It's going to need some investments to sustain it. That's McKinsey senior partner Rodney Zemmel. It's pretty easy to define what needs to happen in a digital transformation, but not so easy to get done, says McKinsey senior partner Kate Smage. It's very easy in some ways to sort of paint a digital lick of paint over everything you do and, and come up with the what, but the how of it is incredibly hard. Especially when you're trying to keep up with the latest technology. Data architecture and all the technology around that, that has evolved furiously over the last 18 to 24 months. That's McKinsey senior partner Eric Lamar. He, Kate, and Rodney have worked with hundreds of clients going through digital transformations. Their new book, Rewired, was inspired by both the frustrations and bottom-line pressures that companies are facing as they try to digitize. The authors describe Rewired as a how-to manual that lets companies take matters into their own hands and compete successfully in the age of digital and AI. This is the McKinsey Podcast, where we help you make sense out of the world's toughest business challenges. I'm Roberta Fasaro, an editorial director at McKinsey, and your host for today. Frankly, we've all read the business book where like, you read the intro chapter, and then there's 300 pages of the same thing, just more examples than were in the intro chapter. This is not designed to be that. So it is uh, not the theory. It's the practicality of what does it really take to move the needle? What does it really take to be a leader and not a laggard in, in this space? And how do you make sure you're not one of the you know, vast majority that, that stalls in their transformation in some way, shape or form? Or if you have, what's the unlock, what's the pivot that's going to get you out of that? For companies that are feeling stuck, some pixie dust probably sounds pretty good. But companies can't just wave a magic wand. Many of our clients are suffering with you know, huge swathes of technology debt. Um, and often what is slowing them down today is it's not actually their ability to create the latest application, but all of the integration complication that's sitting underneath that. To tackle technology debt, or the cost of deploying and maintaining business technologies over time, a company has to measure its digital transformation with the, maybe not exactly the same tools, but with the same degree of rigor that you would measure any cost or revenue transformation. And that's the first step in taking it from something hard and mysterious into something practical. It also means recognizing that digital transformations are ongoing. One of the things that actually annoys me about the term digital transformation is it has this connotation that at some point I am done. I don't think you're ever done with digital transformation. It's a muscle that you're constantly building, you're constantly honing uh, to get better at. Eric Lamar agrees and says his golden rule for leaders beginning a digital transformation is to get educated. You don't start anything other than take your top team and go and learn for three, four, five months. And what does that mean, go and learn? Go visit other companies that have done this that are further down their journey. Now, start to create a common language. What is a data engineer? What's a technology stack? What do you mean by data architecture? What does that mean when you say track the value? How do we do that uh, for a digital solution? Got to start to create a common language so that 
all the team players play the same sport. The leader of that team is the CEO, and that's where some rewiring kicks in. The world is going from you have a CIO on your team, and this is the task of the CIO, maybe joined up with a business leader, to technology is fully embedded in business. Business leaders need to be technology leaders. And so we see a shift from chief information officer, or CIO, to CEO. A McKinsey survey from last year revealed that success with digitization is more likely when you've got C-suite leaders who understand tech, even a little bit. A company's chance of ending up in the top quartile of economic performers are just much higher than if you've got one or two tech-savvy members of your team. I see the CEO as the, the chief orchestrator. There's a dance. Everybody's got to do their part. Otherwise, the value is not going to be there. And so that's the primary job of the CEO. Raise expectations as well, set a drumbeat, and get the dance to unfold. Your orchestra analogy is, is right. The CEO needs to get the team to actually align on the business-led technology roadmap. And that then needs to be a contract for how they all work together to really drive it, rather than they just start the music and then, you know, wave from the side. Kate says when CEOs model a learning mindset, their organizations can transform more quickly. One of the differences I see between CEOs that get getting it right and getting it wrong is when something does go wrong, rather than sort of saying, you know, why, why, why did that happen? What was the problem here? They say, what can we learn from it? And just that slight nuance in the question that they ask can have a massive impact on the, the cultural you know, adherence to the transformation. And the authors make no bones about it. Every digital transformation is a people transformation at its core. This doesn't have to be an entirely new team. There's a large component of this of just who can I upskill? You know, who could really get to a different level on this? How do I take some of the, the capabilities that I have and, and maybe make them more technology enabled without having to sort of throw the baby out with the bathwater? And for those where you're trying to hire from outside, I think one of the most common mistakes that I see is you know, 90, 99% of the effort goes on the recruiting pipeline. And, it, and don't get me wrong, that's hard, but people overfocus. And where I see the best players work is they're probably more like 50-50 of how do I get them in the door, but then how do I make them wildly successful once they're here? Rethinking some elements of talent management can help, like how you remap career pathways, for example, how you think about compensation models and really rewarding skills versus tenure or time in role and so on. Eric adds that when it comes to compensation, it's important to understand the nuances of the job. For instance, if you look at data engineers... Not all data engineers are the same. There are data engineers that are at the very top of their field. They have a breadth of tools that they have mastered. They are really thought leaders in the space. They are problem solver extraordinaire. They have a track record of developing real working products based on, on data. And then you have people that are more novice. They are starting. Your ability as a company to tell the difference between this one and this one is fundamental to be able to pay them differently because otherwise you're unfair. This differentiation can help leaders manage expectations. So you can tell people, I'm paying you at this level because these are the things that I know you're able to do. But if you want to be paid at this level, that's what I would want to be able to do. And now you're setting them on a path to growth and you're able to have a variety of profiles live in, inside the same roof. To ensure productivity under that roof, the CEO can pick from one of three core operating model designs. 
They're all good. It just depends on what works best for the company. Choice one is running a bunch of teams in a kind of digital factory model. What is that exactly? Essentially a construct where you still run in small cross-functional teams. People from the business come from their position to be inside those teams. People from technology come inside those teams. And then you share some commonality around data and infrastructure services and things like that. But it tends to be more of a standalone unit where people go to, to do the job of developing solutions. Model number two is called the product and platform model. It's similar to the digital factory option, and it's the model favored by more and more tech-intensive companies like banks, retailers, and of course, software companies. This time, it's everybody that's in the business and operations side and everybody that's in the technology side who gets regrouped into these small teams and start to develop technology-based solutions. The third model is called enterprise-wide agility. The benefits of Agile, or the use of small, customer-focused teams that continually test and learn, shouldn't be confined to tech-intensive parts of the company. Other business functions can use it to their advantage, too. This model requires a serious multi-year commitment by the CEO. But no matter which model the CEO chooses, each relies on a critical role, the product manager. So the product manager becomes quite important in figuring out where's the need, what are we going to develop, in what sequence, and how we're going to make sure it's going to get adopted. And you're going to say, okay, that's obvious. Uh, We need those. I'd like three dozen. But it's actually hard to get for an established company because this is not a role that you can hire so easily from the outside. Why? Because having knowledge of the enterprise, knowledge of the business, the customers, Uh, the process, the operations, is actually quite valuable in playing that role of mini-CEO. This is a well-rounded skill set of people who can lead technical work, people who can derive customer insights, and bring those two things together to set the right direction for a project. And product managers don't just execute orders, they synthesize. So often getting that product lead role right can be quite a source of tension Partly because maybe the organization is very used to when they're developing technology, you know, throwing it over the fence and saying, here's my set of requirements, you know, go build me X. And that's not the role that the product owner is is there to do. They are there to really understand what are the outcomes that we're trying to drive and they will find the best solution, not just be given a, you know, a menu of requirements for how to do it. Those outcomes should meet the needs of the entire organization, not just the technology team whether that's data, whether that's software products, uh, whether it's applications, whatever it may be, perhaps even just sort of ways of working in terms of code, right? Because ultimately what you want is the the business, the user, the end user, wherever they happen to sit, to be able to draw on that as fast as possible, right? Without the friction that sits around that. Because you're also trying to think about how I make sure that I have upskilled the people who are going to need to draw on it. So I'm Every component that I have, or as many as possible, should be reusable. They should be modular uh, in, in how that works. And that's a very different architecture to what most companies have. At the end of the day, any model the CEO chooses must be resilient and positioned for growth. It's actually very easy to hire some data scientists and to come up with some clever algorithms right, for doing something in your business well. And it becomes incredibly costly and organizationally complex to scale. But from a technology standpoint, right, if instead 
you're really pushing on reuse of the code base that you're developing. Within McKinsey, right, we find actually the solutions that we develop for our insurance clients have a more than 50% overlap with the code base that we're using in our mining clients, right? There are big components of it that are fully reusable. How do you make sure when you've developed your model that it's stable, right? That as the world changes or the data changes or it's not doing crazy things, how do you make sure that it continues to be valid? One way is to think about how you're managing your data. Why? Because this data sometimes will be labeled differently. And so now we don't have very good data. This is where data products comes in. Data product is that small cross-functional team optimized for data, but their job is to actually curate customer uh, data product if that's what we focus on, or operations data product, or supply chain data product. It's a refined product that can be uh, consumed with just the call of an API by any of the teams for, for which we have given access to this data. So it helps really accelerate the deployment of business intelligence or even AI models because now I have made it possible for everybody in the organization to consume something where the data is well-structured. Maybe two other thoughts on that. We've seen way too many times the first we'll build a giant data lake and we'll get all the data in the company and we'll find clever ways to mix it with all the data in the outside world. And that's, that's a project to build for five years before you actually get any value from it. And then point two is data is a marketplace with a supply side and a demand side, and you have to measure both sides. The idea of measuring the team on is the data actually being used. You'd be amazed how many companies have put giant investments into data lakes that aren't used or are barely used. So what's the key to adoption and scaling? It's money, sure, but you also need to think about the users. Investing behind it, not in a fluffy change management way, but in really thinking through the incentives what it means for the business model, how it changes how people spend their time. A simple test question on whether companies are on the sort of the right side of how to do this is just to ask who's responsible for adoption. If the answer to that is the digital team or the chief digital officer, that's the wrong answer, right? Adoption needs to be owned by the business owner of that area. It's the first thing to spend money on is actually is adoption incentivized in the right way. And a few dollars on incentive will often go a lot further than lots of dollars on, you know, the change story and having workshops on why we need to change and all that kind of stuff. The other thing then is actually having the teams really work with frontline people right from the beginning before a line of code is written. There should be a clear link between how that adoption is then going to be used to scale towards the value that's going to be created. So it's very important not to just stop at adoption. I'll give you a, a very simple example of this. This is a number of years ago now with a company with a big warehouse operation. They said, oh, Kate, while you're here, got to show you this new app that we've created. It's brilliant. And they had this on, a, on an iPad. It was a sort of prototype version of it. And the data that they had was exactly the sort of thing that would make this warehouse operator um, you know, make better decisions. It was a beautiful front end. And they were so proud of it. And one of my team, very quietly, slightly sort of timidly said, don't the warehouse people wear gloves? And there was this sort of audible, you know, what on earth are we going to do now moment where they just hadn't thought it through because they weren't obsessed enough with the user to think about not just what's the technology to, the, to make this brilliant set of decisions, but how are they going to use it? And these warehouse operators wear gloves because it's really cold in there. You have to wear gloves as part of the safety procedure. So you've got to put yourself in the mindset of how is this technology going to be used? Because it's ultimately 
it can't be used differently, you can't change a business model around it, then it's just technology. So how you're actually developing things in a way that there is more value accruing to the user of the thing than there is to the collector of the data is an incredibly important part of the art here. Part art, but mostly talent and grit. And to go back to what Rodney said at the beginning... To succeed in a digital transformation, it needs to be a CEO agenda item. It needs to mobilize cross-functional teams across the company in a unique way. It's going to need some investments to sustain it. And Rewired lays out the method for all those things. We know that actually there is a, a real learning curve to applying the method. So we're also hoping that by publishing the book, we're not making ourselves obsolete. But I guess we'll see. For more information about Rewired and the challenges and opportunities of digital transformation, visit mckinsey.com. Thanks so much for listening to the McKinsey Podcast. I'm Lucia Rahili. And I'm Roberta Fasaro. Find us on mckinsey.com. We'll have a transcript of this episode up shortly. And check out the McKinsey Insights app, where you can find this podcast and other helpful content updated daily. And if you would, we'd love for you to leave a rating and a review. We'll see you in two weeks.